So I'm going to start this morning um, a little bit differently. My, my uh, favorite history professor in college, she would always walk into the classroom and say, let me tell you a story. And then she would proceed to like, unravel history in the, like, the most accessible way. So I'm going to start this morning by telling you a story. And this is a story about a prophet named Jeremiah from the Old Testament. Now, Jeremiah lived in turbulent times in the city of Jerusalem. And he was a counselor of sorts to the king of Judah, King Zedekiah, in the way that prophets of old sometimes you know, were counselors to kings and other rulers. And Zedekiah was a weak and an anxious king. He was living in a time where he was having to try to save his throne and save his own life because the Babylonians kept coming down and attacking. And so this anxious king, Zedekiah, he called on his neighbors to the south. He called on Egypt and asked them to send up some troops. And so Egypt did. And as Egypt sent up some troops, the Babylonians retreated. Well, Jeremiah the prophet, he was a man who heard from God. And God instructed him to go and to tell this anxious king not to be deceived by these retreating troops. So God said, tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of me. Pharaoh's army, which has marched out to support you, they're going to go back to their land, to Egypt. They're going to turn around. And then the Babylonians, or they're going to return and they're going to attack the city and they are going to capture it and they are going to burn it down. Well, that's not what anyone wanted to hear from the prophet, much less this anxious king. So we've been talking about René Girard and scapegoat theory these last few weeks. And so this story has a perfect setup for a scapegoating episode. Right? There's rivalry on a mass scale as these armies come to meet each other and fight over the land. And there's rivalry on a smaller scale as well, as various voices seek to sort of influence this anxious king who doesn't know what to do. And if you've been following the series, you know that an anxious system that is filled with rivalries and underlying violence is ripe for a scapegoat. And so Jeremiah becomes one. So right after he speaks this to the king, Jeremiah the prophet, he walks out to the territory of Benjamin where he's from. That's where he was born. And he's walking out there and he sees the captain of the king's guard. And so the two of them would have known one another. Right, because Jeremiah was a counselor to the king, and this is like the, the, the king's security guard, his head security guard. And so the captain of the king's guard comes over, and he puts Jeremiah under arrest. And only after arresting him, he turns to Jeremiah, and he accuses him of deserting his people and going over and fighting for the Babylonians. Right, this guy comes, and he accuses him of treason. And then the captain drags Jeremiah off to answer to some officials, with Jeremiah protesting the whole time that he's innocent and that he has no intention of going over to the Babylonians. Well, these officials don't listen, and they proceed to beat him up, and then they take him to the home of a man named Jonathan. He's called Jonathan the Secretary. I don't know why. Jonathan the Secretary had turned his house into a prison. And so they took Jeremiah, and they dumped him in the dungeon of this house in a vaulted cell, and we're told that he was kept there for a very long time. Now, if we pause for just a second, when rivalries surface within groups, like whether large groups or small groups, they're prone to violence as people turn on each other. And we humans do this almost without fail, whenever anxiety and rivalries reach a certain tipping point, unless a scapegoat is found, on which we can then place all of the blame for the anxiety that's residing in the system. So the scapegoat is a person or people who are different for some reason, any reason, and then they're falsely accused of doing something like so heinous that it justifies the isolation, the bullying, the flagellating, or even the killing of that person or that minority group who's being scapegoated. And then the effect is that the people who were fighting among themselves now find themselves united against the scapegoat, right? So having a scapegoat can bring a sense of unity to a group. 
And this process of scapegoating, it can manifest in smaller ways as well. It's not just on like, national levels. It can manifest in families, like with like, the quote-unquote the black sheep of the family. That's often the person who's, you know, you kind of talk about them, you pick on them, you might sort of jokingly attribute all the bad things of the family to them. You know, like, you know, you'd drink too much too if you were married to Uncle Joe. You know, like Uncle Joe's to blame for all of that. The black sheep can be made to carry the anxiety and the sin of the family. And this can actually unify a family by giving them something to joke about together at somebody else's expense. In Jesus' story, the Gospel of Luke tells us that King Herod and Pilate had been enemies. But when Jesus was being beaten and they were putting the crown of thorns on his head and preparing him for his execution, we're told that Herod and Pilate suddenly became friends. Right? They united against Jesus, and that brought them together in a way that nothing else could. They now had a common enemy. And so the same thing here is happening with Jeremiah the prophet. Right? There's clearly tension and there's rivalry around this ancient king. And instead of fighting one another, the guards and the officials, the officials falsely accuse Jeremiah of treason. And so Jeremiah, he's there in the cell. He's been beaten. He's sitting in this dungeon in this house that's been converted into a prison. And this ancient king must have known that that's what had happened to Jeremiah. He knew where he was, and he hadn't been too bothered by it. And one day, he just casually sends for Jeremiah and has him brought up to his quarters, and he takes him into a private room, and he asks him, Jeremiah, is there any word from the Lord? Yeah, that's exactly my response, Jeff. I was like, can you imagine the audacity? Like, seriously, if you're Jeremiah, like, you've been letting your men beat me up and imprison me, and now you want me to tell you what God has to say to you for guidance? Jeremiah, he repeats the word that he had had from God that the king of the Babylonians would indeed come and overrun the city. And then he says, look, what crime have I committed against you or your officials or the people of this land that you put me in prison? Right? I'm innocent. Please don't send me back to that prison or I'm going to die there. That's how bad the conditions were. He's like, I'm going to die. So the king hears that and he knows Jeremiah is innocent and so he doesn't send him back to the dungeon. But instead of releasing him, like he should do to an innocent man, the king orders that Jeremiah be kept in the courtyard of the guard. Well, the courtyard of the guard, that doesn't really solve Jeremiah's problem because that places him right back into the hands of his accusers. Right? This is a place where the captain of the guard would be able to keep an eye on him. Maybe he couldn't beat him up quite as fiercely or as often. Well, Jeremiah is in that courtyard, and he doesn't keep quiet. That's why people don't like prophets, right? <laughs> he's a man of conviction, and he really believes that he's heard from God. And so this makes his message to the people urgent. He's like, look, the Babylonians are coming. And so he makes no effort to keep any peace. He yells out, whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, by famine, by plague. But whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. He'll escape with his own life. He will live. The city will certainly be handed over to the army of the king of Babylon, who will capture it. Now, Jeremiah himself had no intention of going over to the Babylonians. He doesn't even do it after the Babylonians come and capture the city, and he's given the option to actually live comfortably there. But at this point, he's just like, look, people, you've got to get out of here, and you've got to save your own lives. Destruction is coming. You need to go and save yourselves and save your families. And so the officials and the guards are livid with him. And they go to the king and they say, okay, look, you guys got to kill this guy. Like, he is a massive bummer. He's, discour <laughs> he's discouraging all the soldiers, the people who are actually left in the city. He is not seeking their good. He's not seeking their good, which is another false accusation, right? Jeremiah actually was seeking the people's good, and it was in their best interest to flee. 
So once again, here we've got this mob forming against Jeremiah, and this time they're seeking his death. So and once again, we see the leadership of this anxious king. It's like, it's like he respects Jeremiah in some ways. He knows he's innocent. He wants to know. He's like, I believe this guy hears from God. I want to know what this guy is hearing. So I think a part of him wants to protect Jeremiah. But then on the other hand, he's so afraid. He's so afraid of the guards and the officials and the mob. He doesn't want to upset them and stir their anger against him. So he tells the guards, he says, okay, look, the king can do nothing to oppose you. Do what you will. And how many times do we see this in the biblical narrative? Where people, even leaders, they play along with the mob so that they don't get persecuted themselves. A few weeks ago, we talked about Joseph and his brothers, you know, threw him into a well. And his oldest brother, Reuben, didn't want that to happen, but he didn't say anything because he didn't want his brothers to turn on him. Right? It's the Apostle Peter outside of Caiaphas' house denying that he knows Jesus, as Ken preached on a couple of weeks. It's Pontius Pilate seeing people gathered around Jesus calling for his death and washing his hands. Right? Matthew 27, he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. And he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. Right? So in Jeremiah's story, this is what the king is saying to the mob. Look, I can do nothing to oppose you. Do as you will. I wash my hands. Right? And so let me say this as, as like a leadership lesson. It is poor leadership to wash your hands of defending the innocent and the vulnerable so as not to succumb to crowd violence or persecution yourself. Right? It's poor leadership to wash your hands of defending the innocent and the vulnerable so as not to succumb to crowd violence or persecution yourself. So I'm going to speak a little, little freely here, if that's all right. I've been able to process some of the things that have happened to me, and um, many of you know I was fired from Vineyard USA for being gay. I was asked to resign. And I've talked about how I processed my experience of going through that in terms of me being a scapegoat in the larger vineyard movement. You know, the larger movement nationally was rife with all of this anxiety and tension and rivalries over LGBTQ inclusion. And to be honest, it was still rife with anxieties and rivalries over the inclusion of women being pastors. And so being both female and gay, I was a pretty prime candidate for a good public meeting. <laughs> And since Ken's not here today, I'll share this with you. He's, he's speaking at a church called The Table in D.C. I don't want to embarrass him. But um, as I've reflected with him and with our staff, I just thought it would have been really easy for him to have washed his hands of me and to ask me to step down from pastoring or to step back for the sake of the unity of the group, which is what a lot of people were calling for. Don't break up unity. Emily, if you would just step back for a time, and then there were all sorts of ridiculous you could get married and never have sex. You could do whatever. Like, just weird, weird things happen <laughs> in anxious systems. And he could have asked me to do that, to give him and other allies more time to fight for space for LGBTQ leaders in the church. But, you know, it would have been a false unity because the anxieties would have remained and another scapegoat would have had to have been found. You know, he could have washed his hands of the movement and what it would do to me, but you know what? He did not once ask me to do that. And instead, he chose to stand with me at my most vulnerable time at a cost to himself. And when we do that, as many of you in this room know, because you also did it as well, you bear some of the cost of what it is to be a scapegoat. And so as a scapegoat, I had some false accusations made of me, though not nearly as many as I would have expected. I definitely felt the anger of a lot of people focused on me. You know, like, why was I doing this to them? 
Um, because Gerard says one of, the, one of the dynamics of the mob is that the mob feels victimized themselves. Right? When they're the ones doing the oppressing, they actually feel victimized by the scapegoat. This I'm going to go off notes and just say. Um, so I carried some of the false accusations and a lot of the anger, but you know who bore the brunt of them? Was Ken. He took a lot of the false accusations and the anger and the abuse of the mob. And I will say, Ken's not a perfect person. I've known him 17 years. He's not a perfect pastor. He's a good one. I'm not a perfect person. I'm not a perfect pastor. There are things that we would have done differently when we look back. But he wasn't guilty of the things that he was accused of, like abuse and such. You know, and I've told him um, that if he hadn't done that, if, you know, if I was like metaphorically like on my path to crucifixion, to being like exiled from the vineyard and carrying all of the weight of the shame and the anxiety of that system, he was the guy that came out and helped me carry my cross. And if he hadn't done that, I wouldn't have made it through and we wouldn't have this beautiful community of people. So I just like to say, he's not a perfect man. Like he stood for me publicly and I thought I should just publicly honor him. He's a laid down lover of Jesus and he was a really good friend to me. And I honor that as many of you were and I honor you. And I wanted to call it specifically, I was glad Andrea was here. Andrea Walrath is one of my best friends and this will embarrass her, but man, she was on the inside of that and she was such a great friend and she carried a lot of that for the sake of us and for my sake. And so I say like Ken talked about having a culture of honor and I think that we should honor that in him. So I want to get back to Jeremiah with that. Jeremiah, the king in Jeremiah, did not do what Ken did. He did wash his hands of Jeremiah, and he turned him over to the mob. And then the mob takes Jeremiah down to the courtyard, and they dump him into an empty cistern, right, into an empty well, which should remind us a little bit again of Joseph being dumped into the empty well by his brothers. And this cistern that Jeremiah was dumped into didn't have any water, but instead it was filled with mud, and so it was like this giant well filled with mud, and they throw Jeremiah in it, and he sinks down into the mud, like up to here, and they leave him there to die without any food or any water. Oh, Rene Girard, the Stanford Lit professor whose work we've been learning from for this series, he spent his entire career looking at scapegoats in various myths and histories from around the world. And he tells us that in almost every single ancient myth, the scapegoat is either exiled or killed. And in almost every single ancient myth, the scapegoat is presumed guilty by the writers of the myth, because presumably the writers of the myths were the ones who actually did the scapegoating, so they get to tell the story. They're the ones left, right? Oedipus deserved what he got. Well, following this pattern, Jeremiah the prophet should have died in this story or been exiled with the reader or the listener presuming that he was guilty as charged. But Gerard also says, look, the biblical narrative is actually unique among ancient literature because what it does is it slowly unmasks this scapegoating mechanism that groups use to quell violence at the expense of the vulnerable. Right? Much of the Bible is actually written from the standpoint of the victim and not of the victimizers. He writes this, he said, beginning with the story of Cain and Abel, the Bible proclaims the innocence of victims and the guilt of the victimizers. He said, living after the wife promulgation of the gospel, we find this natural. We never pause to think that in classical myths, the opposite is true. The persecutors always seem to have a valid reason to persecute their victims. And so the biblical text is doing some of this unmasking in the story of Jeremiah the prophet. Isn't it? It's interesting to me that both times that Jeremiah is falsely accused in the text, he's accused of being a traitor and of not seeking the good of his people, the reader or the listener is actually aware of the scapegoat's innocence. Right? We're allowed to see it for what it is. 
And so this is part of the wisdom and part of the genius of the text. And then the thing that's truly remarkable in this story is that someone actually steps in to speak on behalf of Jeremiah. Somebody steps in and speaks on behalf of the scapegoat, and then that person actually isn't killed with the scapegoat. So an official in the royal palace named Ebed-Melech, he hears that these men have put Jeremiah down into this pit, and so he goes to the ancient king and he says, okay, my lord and king, the men have acted wickedly. Jeremiah's in a pit, he's going to die down there. And Ebed-Melech, we're told, is a Cushite. So Ebed-Melech is from probably Lower Egypt or what is Ethiopia today. And I just thought perhaps his minority status allows him to have a little extra compassion on Jeremiah, knowing how vulnerable minority groups are to similar treatment from crowds. Well, the king already knew that Jeremiah was going to die, right? He had washed his hands of that. He knew what the men were going to do. But he didn't want Ebed-Melech to know that, right? which tells us how much disagreement and anxiety is in, the, uh, is in the royal palace there. The king didn't want to upset anyone. And so he plays dumb and he tells Ebed-Melech, okay, well, go, fetch Jeremiah from the cistern. And so Ebed-Melech, who was my new Bible hero, I'm saying his name a lot so that we remember it. He goes and he fetches some ropes and some rags and some old clothes. And he goes to the well and he throws them over. And he instructs Jeremiah to place the rags and the old clothes under his armpits. And I was trying to imagine that. I thought, well, yeah, like if you've ever gotten your boots stuck in a big thing of mud, you know how hard it is just to get a boot out of there. If you're a person and you've been stuck in mud for a few hours, maybe a day up to there, like, can you imagine the suction? And so the ropes that he would have to put around him were going to cut him. And so I thought, how thoughtful of Ebed-Melech to send him some rags to put under his armpits so that they could try and haul him up. And so he gets Jeremiah out of the well, and the king summons Jeremiah again. But this time in total secrecy, right? The king doesn't want his guards to know at all. And then, as before, he begs Jeremiah to tell him if God has anything to say. And in my notes, I just wrote SMH, shaking my head. <laughs> like, who does this king think he, is, think he is here? So I can imagine Jeremiah is just exasperated at this point. He's like, look, the message is the same as before. The only thing that I will say that is different, if you surrender to the Babylonians, they won't burn down the city and you won't die. But if you, do, or if you don't surrender, they're going to ransack the city and you will die. So regardless of whether you surrender or not, they are going to overtake this city and they will control it. Well, the king is just paralyzed by this information and he does nothing. So apparently he's not getting the message from God that he hopes for. And so we're told that soon after the Babylonians do come in, they ransack the city, the king is indeed killed. And then Jeremiah, he's actually treated very gently by the Babylonians, probably because he had been taken captive and they ask him what he would like to do, and he stays with the remnant of his people in the city. And if you've ever read the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament, that is his like, song of sorrow over the ransacking of that city. So a few things to point out in this story here. You know, we've talked quite a few times in the last few weeks. Like, If you're new, it might even be worth going back and listening to some of the sermons in the series, because we've talked a lot about mimetic desire. And mimetic just means imitative. Right? Gerard says that when people desire the same thing, that can lead to rivalries and violence if there's something that they both want that they can't share. You know, like if there's a promotion at work that you and your coworker both want, there's going to be some rivalry over who is going to get that spot. Right? But Gerard, he also talks about something else that he calls mimetic contagion. And this is what happens when a crowd gets riled up. Mimetic contagion. So have you ever been in like a large crowd and then just suddenly felt a little bit scared? 
Almost like you could feel like some fear or some anxiety or maybe even anger in a crowd. Like you just sort of sense it. You know, like, it's like, I don't know, like a concert or something like that. Or maybe even like a political rally during this season, I would imagine you might feel that. Or maybe you've been in like a crowded room that is a little overfull, and you just have that thought that goes through your mind of like, you know, if the fire alarm went off, would there be like a stampede? Could I get out of here? I don't know, maybe you guys aren't as anxious as I am, you know? <laughs> I take medication for that. But <laughs> I remember feeling that way at the State Theater. Like, okay, this is like a really don't judge me. I went to see um, at the State Theater, this was like a couple of years ago, the International Internet Cat Film Festival. <laughs> right? Because I thought that will be amazing, if nothing else for the people watching, and I kind of secretly loved it. But I mean, they packed that place in, and there was like standing room only. And if you've been in the state, you know, like I'm five foot three, and my knees almost touched the seat in front of me in there. And I was just like, I just don't feel quite right in here. Well, that feeling is because of our like human hurting instinct, right? We're aware when groups of other humans are around us, and that they might start to panic or rush a certain way, or turn on somebody and just get out of control. So not only do humans imitate each other's desires, you know, I want what you want, but we also imitate each other's feelings and actions. So we've got these things called mirror neurons in our brains, and this was totally fascinating to me. So these were discovered in 1992 in Italy by a team that was researching macaque monkeys. And so they actually weren't looking for these things called mirror neurons, but they were studying how the brain works like when we have movements in our body. And so they had taken this macaque and they had hooked him up with all sorts of electrodes. And then they had taken those electrodes and hooked them up to a machine so that every time the macaque moved, the machine beeped. Right? So they were trying to trace different brain pathways. So the macaque moved his arm, it beeped. You know, moved his head, it beeped. You get the idea. Well, the scientists went to lunch, and when they came back, one of their grad students had an ice cream cone, because it's Italy and there's gelato. Right? <laughs> so it's, it's amazing. So the grad student is standing there, and he's just looking at the macaque, and he takes a lick of the ice cream cone. And the macaque's, the beep went off. Beep. But the monkey hadn't moved. So the grad student's like, well, that's weird. So he takes another lick of the ice cream cone. Again, beep. But the monkey hadn't moved. And so what the scientist realized is that the monkey's brain was acting as if the monkey were making the movement himself. You know, like, why only watching the human make that same movement? And so this was pretty groundbreaking. It's helped scientists study how babies learn to be in the world. So it seems like babies, they watch older humans, right? They watch what we do, and then their brains begin to make these connections and build these pathways that then enable them to be able to do the same things that we're doing. So you like when a baby, like for a while, they just watch you smile, but they can't smile back. But what they think is happening is that their brains are actually performing the smiling function and building the connections and the pathways so that eventually they're able to actually perform the physical function. Right? So they can mimic you. And beware of who your mentors are. Our brains work this way, right? In crowds, this effect is also in play, right? So when people around us get riled up about something, we begin to mimic their anger or their anxiety or whatnot. And so Gerard calls this mimetic contagion. It's how people do things in crowds that they're like, I would normally never do that. And so this is at play in a scapegoating mob. Gerard writes this. He says, only two possible reactions to the mimetic contagion exist, and they make an enormous difference. Either we surrender and we join in with the persecuting crowd, or we resist and we stand alone. And the first way is the unanimous self-deception that we call mythology. And the second is the road to the truth followed by the Bible. Instead of blaming victimization on the victims, the Gospels blame it on the victimizers. 
So what the myths systematically hide, the Bible reveals. I think this is really important. You know, are we getting this a little bit here? You know, like when Ken was preaching about the Apostle Peter, you know, he was talking about how it's so much easier to go along with the crowd. It's like our human instinct. We get caught up in this mimetic contagion because we're fearful, fearful for ourselves and we, we desire the community and the unity with the people around us. And it's even biological, right? This is so deeply human. This is what's happening to that anxious king in the story of Jeremiah. You know, like guards are coming up and he's mimicking their anger and just going along with it. And then Ebed Malek comes up and he kind of mimics his compassion. He's just not a very grounded person at all. He's thinking, you know, what if the crowd turns on me? It's better to mimic them and to blend in. And, you know, Peter, the apostle, and Jesus, and the apostle Stephen, Stephen, the one who was stoned in the New Testament, all three of them talk about the crowd as being sort of ignorant of what they're doing. You know, Jesus, Father, forgive them. They know what they do. Stephen says that as they're stoning them. Don't hold this sin against them, Lord. You know, being ignorant of mimetic contagion is a human thing. But they're saying the gospel reveals it so that we know. Right? And so now, because we have Jesus, we know there's a choice. Right? You can join the mob, you can affirm what people have always said, that victims somehow deserve what's happening to them, or you can stand alone against the mob. And that's the Jesus way. You might even go so far as to say that's Christian conversion. Right? The apostles Peter and Paul, we've been talking about in the New Testament, both of them, when they converted, converted from being part of a mob that stood against Jesus, Paul very forcefully overseeing the stoning and the imprisoning of so many Christians, to being people who are like, no, that I renounce, that I repent from. And the way that we do this, the way that we stand against the crowd is that we imitate Christ. We don't mimic the crowd, we mimic Christ. And this is why I think Jesus and the Apostle Paul in particular, as well as Peter and John, talk so much about imitating Christ, right? We need Jesus' mimetic contagion. So I'm going to read several verses here, just, just for effect. John 13 it says, when Jesus had finished washing the disciples' feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. And he says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. So you say, mimic me. Mimic me. Mimic my humility and my servanthood and my desire to lay down power and lay down my life for others. Mimic me. John 13, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples, if you love one another. Right? I loved you, now mimic me, go love others. John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commands and I remain in his love. I told you this so that my joy will be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus mimics the Father. We're called to mimic Jesus. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Right? He's saying, okay, now Jesus mimics the Father. I mimic Jesus. Now you mimic me. 1 John, this is how we know we're in Christ. Whoever claims to be in him must live as Jesus did. Ephesians 4, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Colossians, bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any one of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Right? In everything, Jesus loved us first, now mimic that. Jesus forgave us first, now mimic that. In all things, imitate Christ in his self-giving nature and love one another. Forgive one another. 
embraces identification with the vulnerable and the victimized. And he says, if you do this, you've got the keys to the kingdom of God. And if enough of us do this, more people will mimic our behavior. Right? So that's the good go. Tell everybody. This is good news. We can get out of this cycle of violence and scapegoating. Because of what Jesus did, he declared this whole cycle foolish. And then the counterintuitive thing about this gospel message is that following Jesus will not lead to peace and unity in the short run. Hi, Maurice. <laughs> following Jesus will not lead to peace and unity in the short run. You know, like Jesus had this weird saying, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or their mother more than me isn't worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever doesn't take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Like, this has always been kind of enigmatic to me because it sounds mean and it sounds terrible, right? This passage of Jesus made no sense, you know? He's supposed to be the Prince of Peace. That's his title, in the short run, standing against the mob doesn't bring peace, and Jesus knows that. Right? Unmasking the scapegoat mechanism, it robs the group of its feeling of unity. Right? If you remember, having a scapegoat actually works to bring unity to a group. It takes enemies and brings them together. And when you unmask that, you're also taking away a little bit of the sense of the peace and unity of that group. But it is revealed for what it is. It's a false peace at the expense of the vulnerable. And the promise of scripture is that if enough witnesses start to talk about what Jesus has done in declaring this entire scapegoating system foolish and unjust, right? If enough witnesses to begin to live this out, like Ebed Malek and like Peter and like Paul and like all of the early Christians, that eventually peace will reign. But Gerard says, you know, apocalypse might come first. You know, I, I want to delve more into this in his work because I haven't looked at a lot, but he says, you know, the apocalyptic literature, like John's revelation are actually crucial to the big picture. But we're told that the peace of God, the peaceable kingdom is at hand. And that's the, imitation of the, of the invitation of the scripture, right? It's come and join this movement. Come and imitate Christ. Pick up your cross. Follow this humble path. Lay down your lives. Suffer on behalf of the oppressed. Because you know what? It's there that you experience the company of Christ most fully. Because that's the path that he walked. And you know, this kingdom is already unfolding. I was thinking about it yesterday, and I thought, you know, how do we see this manifest? Well, we do see more and more people speaking up on behalf of the victims, which you didn't see in the ancient world, according to Girard. I mean, Amnesty International is only 60 years old. And I think about it in terms of uh, being a historian. That was my undergrad. And, you know, postmodernity sometimes gets a bad rap in Christian circles. But man, there's some great things that postmoderns started talking about. And that was like layers of power. And who gets to talk about what happened? Is it the people who are always the winners? the ones that saying the scapegoating is justified, and they started looking at the voices of the oppressed. So you started having African-American history and women's history and First Nations history and all of these different things. And we started building museums that honored people from the Holocaust to listen to their stories and the stories of survivors. The new African-American History Museum that's opening at the Smithsonian that's going to help us remember our history of slavery and oppression. To me, these are signs that the kingdom of God is at work. It's unfolding. Okay, so we... Listen to these voices. We imitate Christ in all things. We're called to be bold in our defense of the vulnerable. 
And when we're so very human and we mess it up, right, we are all sinners and a fall short of the glory of God, right, then we receive the tremendous grace and mercy of Jesus, just as we saw Jesus restore Peter to him, that that is on offer when we miss the mark. All right, I think I've preached a little bit longer today. We'll do a little bit of silence, maybe not the full two minutes. What we like to do is just spend a couple minutes in silence. It doesn't have to be completely silent. Babies and people make noise. Um, but we'll just spend this time, and I thought maybe we could just hear from Jesus. Just ask him if there's a way that we can imitate him a little bit more this week. And if you'd like to make it more specific, you could think about a very particular situation, maybe in your work life or in your marriage or partnership. Like, Lord, just how can we better imitate you? And so, Lord, we just open our hands and invite your peace. We invite your voice. If you have something to say, I'll keep my eye on the time. Come, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, this week, open our eyes to how we can be humble, how we can serve others, and how we can love one another better. Amen.